Hey, funny people. Thanks for joining me here on this episode of Four Cents of Podcast. We're going to have some fun because I've got something to talk about. So stay tuned. Hello, funny people, and welcome once again to Four Cents of Podcast. I am your host, Ian Martinez-Kassmeyer. So this is going to be kind of a special, atypical episode of the podcast. Uh, Right at the beginning of the month, I toyed with the idea of doing a birthday special. I've been kind of doing one of these roughly one a month, you know, ever since the the summer uh, hiatus at the you know at the end of the show at the end of last season been doing just one episode a month to kind of let people know that this is not a dead podcast and this one will probably be the biggest one of all of them just because it's you know it's my birthday so what are you going to do but i wasn't entirely sure what i was going to do on this episode uh i had no real idea of a plan So I did a poll, I put out a poll, tweeted a poll on Twitter as to what I should do, what other, what listeners of this show thought I should do, and what ended up happening is what the listeners wanted was, what my listeners wanted, what you guys wanted, was a mix of stuff. There were three main options that I put out there. There were actually four in total, but the first three were the following. One, I thought I could do a weekend variety style uh, personal story. One that I'd never done on this podcast before, obviously. But uh, one nonetheless, so a new one. Thought that would be a good idea. Another idea was that I would do a Reader's Corner style reading of some of my favorite poems that weren't mine, obviously. That's what last month's episode was all about. And the third was that, was a new idea that I had sort of an inkling might be interesting or might be of interest to some of my listeners, which is the idea of doing uh, a reading of one of the short stories that I've recently had published in one of the books that I've been published in, one of the anthologies that I've advertised on this show. As a matter of fact, if you actually go to the Four Cents Podcast website, if you go to anchor slash four fm dot fm slash four cents of podcast and you look up all of those episodes there's three of them so far you'll actually find the amazon links to all those books they're still available and they're still reasonably priced and you can read these stories yourself so i put up those three suggestions and then i thought to add one more which was to do a combination of all three and lo and behold My followers wanted me to do a mix. They wanted me to do all three. So figuring out how to format this episode was going to be kind of interesting because that's a lot of material to get packed into one show and still make it reasonable to listen to. (laughs) Uh, So what I ended up doing is I I knew exactly which poet I was going to read. I was going to... I decided... From the get-go, if that ended up getting the most votes, I was going to read some poetry by Robert Frost, who I happen to share this birthday with. I've never 
read any of Robert Frost's poetry. I've never done a Reader's Corner episode of him, but I thought what better day to do an episode featuring some of his poems than on the day that we have in common, which is our our shared birthday. I wouldn't, I I decided from the get-go that I was not going to do a classic Reader's Corner episode where I talk a little bit about him and then uh, analyze the poems. Instead, what I was going to do is I was just going to read them to you or recite them to you. Um, I do have some of his poems memorized, and I, but others I don't, so I would have to actually read them to you. Uh, and hopefully you won't be able to tell the difference. <laughs> so that's part of it. And then I had to figure out a good story that I could tell you about my own life, which I figured, okay, I'll, I'll open the show that way. It'll be slightly different. And then I finally decided I was going to close the show reading one of the stories that I had published in one of the books. Given that In the Red Room uh, is the book that uh, I'm currently peddling, I decided I was going to read the story from that one, which is called Deliver Us From Evil. And so I'll go ahead and read that one. That'll be the closer of the show. I'll do little mini intros to each section. Uh, so you'll hear, you know, me running my face at you uh, before the head of each section. But I hope you'll enjoy this. It's kind of a grab back episode. It's a little bit weekend variety, a little bit reader's corner. But it's all me. <laughs> it's all me and, and Robert Frost. So I do hope you'll enjoy this. So stick around. This is going to be an interesting show. Hey, funny people, I'd like to get to know my audience just a little bit better, so if you have any questions for me or suggestions for topics you'd like to hear me talk about on the show, send me an email to fourcentsapodcast at gmail.com. That's the number four, sensapodcast, all one word, no underscores, no dots, at gmail.com. Or DM the show or at me into a tweet on Twitter at four cents underscore a podcast and i'll share a few of the best ones on the next episode i hope to hear from you all soon and i look forward to what you all have to say i'm pretty sure it's going to be fun so we're going to kick things off with uh, this particular piece, which is basically uh, a story. I think it's the longest piece that I've ever done on this podcast, the longest written piece that I've ever done on this podcast. I know I've rambled and monologued into this microphone plenty of times, and it's gone well over 20 minutes when I've done it. But this, I think, is the longest uh, actual written piece that I've read on this podcast altogether. So it's uh, pretty extensive. And it's basically a story. It's a story of me figuring out what it is that I was supposed to do with my life. Because for whatever reason, maybe it was the Catholic upbringing, maybe it was just a little bit of magical thinking on my part, I don't know. I firmly believe that every single person who is born into this world is born with three things. They're born with an ability to do something at a slightly higher level 
than most everybody else. They're born with a kind of advantage, you might say. They're also born with time, and they're born with an expiration date. And the time, what you're supposed to do, and thus what I believe the point of life is, is you're supposed to figure out what it is that you're good at. Figure out what your talent is, what your gift is. And then you're supposed to use all that time that you're given to discover it, hone it, practice it, sharpen it, and bring it to its highest possible form of expression. I don't care what it is. I don't care if you're Kobe Bryant on the basketball court. I don't care if you're Pablo Picasso sitting in front of a canvas with a palette of paints. I don't care if you're a ballerina dancing Swan Lake better than any ballerina ever. I don't care if you're a musician whose goal it is to eventually play the Hollywood Bowl. I don't care. The point of life is to figure out what it is that you're supposed to do, what it is you're good at, and to devote yourself to it. And by doing that, you lead a contented life. And I know, you know, as William Ernest Henley said, uh, the foul clutch of circumstance sometimes derails these plans. And some people are forced to devote their lives to only making a living and are never able to devote themselves to the highest possible expression of their talent. Some of them don't ever even find out what their talent is. And that's unfortunate. But those of us who have the opportunity, those of us who have the chance to do that, I think have an obligation to do it. Not only for ourselves, but also for everybody who doesn't get the opportunity. And so that's what this piece is about. And I call it Finding My Métier. I hope it's interesting. I hope it's insightful into my mind after all the name of this episode is the window into my mind and i hope that in places it's at least a little amusing so enjoy when i was 17 years old I was sitting in my college algebra class in high school, bored. It was a day when we had a substitute teacher, a glorified babysitter who was just there to make sure we didn't destroy school property. So most everyone in the class had sectioned off into their regular cliques to chit-chat until the bell rang. I, the perpetual outsider, chose to amuse myself another way. I pulled out one of my spiral notebooks and started to write a short story. This was the first short story I'd ever attempted to write, although not my first attempt at fiction. All the way through high school, I'd been working on a longer project that, as I later discovered upon finishing it, constituted my first attempt at a novel. I can still recall the story fairly clearly. It was about an old man named Edward Wilkes who hated people and lived a highly unadventurous life. For some reason, the idea of writing a story about such a person struck me as funny, and I wanted to see if I could do it. The story, of course, was no good. In fact, when I submitted it to my first creative writing class, my fellow workshop attendees thoroughly eviscerated it. 
The central flaw of the story, when I reflect on it now, was that though the story had plenty happening within it, Wilkes was nothing more than a token on a game board. He had no motivation, no stake in the outcome of the story. I hadn't learned the central rule of fiction writing. What a character wants should drive the engine of the plot. And when those two concepts work together in tandem, you get a story. My novel in progress was also no good, but I didn't know this then, and it didn't really matter to me. I simply enjoyed the process. Once I finished the story of Edward Wilkes, which I was able to do in the hour and a half college algebra class that day, I had a small revelation. Writing was really the only thing I wanted to do with my life. I had found my métier. I also recognized in that moment, reflecting on my life up to that point, just how unlikely it had been that my vocation would indeed be writing. As an elementary school kid, I suffered from what was euphemistically called reading difficulties. Undiagnosed at the time, what I likely suffered from was a mild case, if such distinctions exist, of dyslexia, compounded by much more pronounced but nonetheless also undiagnosed anxiety. From kindergarten through to the third grade, I'd managed to dodge and weave my way through school. Like most people who suffer from dyslexia, I had developed very good auditory learning skills. If someone told me something aloud, I could retain it and understand it between 80 and 90% of the time. Not outstanding, but not terrible. My excellence in other areas besides reading and composition at the time, however, also helped. Believe it or not, I was exceptionally good at mathematics and science at that age, and those high marks buoyed me throughout school. Unfortunately, when I hit the third grade, that auditory learning skill became moot. My teacher that year, one Miss Burton, a stern, older African-American woman with thick glasses who bore a passing resemblance to the late great Rosa Parks, gave us a standing homework assignment she expected all of her students to complete, a weekly book report. Each week she expected us to read a book, a children's novel or a chapter book, and write a report about it. Well, there was no getting around this any other way. The problem was because I was so aware of my own lack of reading ability, I always procrastinated, a habit that I'm still sadly suffering from to this day. One weekend, in fact, me and my mother, she was always the one who got stuck doing this, had to stay up until 1 a.m. reading the whole of Roald Dahl's James and the Giant Peach together aloud one Sunday night. Those who know the book know that it's not very long, but to an eight-year-old, everything seems long. I went to bed and got up at seven later that morning to write my sad little book report, and the cycle would begin again. My parents, and my mother in particular, as she was the more present parent in raising my siblings and I, long knew of this problem. My mother had regularly gotten me after-school tutoring and reading, The thing was that rather than learning or improving, I'd memorize what they expected me to read time after time like a musician who can't read music learns a tune by ear so I could pass out of the tutoring. But then I'd plateau again. 
She'd also have many of the family friends try to get me to read as well, a prime example of 21st century it-takes-a-village thinking. One friend of hers was a PhD-holding college professor who she roped into doing this. One weekend my brother and I spent at her home, I can remember involved an hour spent with her in her apartment living room forcing me to read a picture book titled The Carrot Seed by Ruth Krauss and Crockett Johnson. How either of us managed to get through that without killing each other is a miracle. In the end, I think I just outlasted the hour like a boat in a hurricane. To this day, I can't look at the cover of that book without cringing, and I've never brought up the experience with her since. That this friend of my mom's later went on to adopt a daughter of her own is also a miracle. If I had endured that same experience with someone else's child, the idea of parenthood would have died following that experience. My mother had other ways, though. Each summer, she'd sign my brother, who had problems reading at first as well, and I up for the St. Louis Public Library's Summer Reading Club. The goal? Read 15 books by the end of the summer and win prizes. Summers during those years were not fun. By the end of the third grade, my elementary school finally decided that my lack of reading proficiency was unacceptable. So, at the end of the year, they issued an ultimatum to my mother. Either I had to go to summer school to jack up my reading ability, or I had no choice but to repeat the third grade. My mother somehow pulled the educational equivalent of an offer and compromise with the school. If she got a tutor from me over the summer to come to the house, then not only would I not have to go to summer school, but I'd be able to move on to the fourth grade. The school accepted the idea. She then went out and found a nun to help me. Because if you're Catholic and neither a teacher nor a college professor can help you, you get a nun to do it. Don't worry, though, it's not what you think. My mother didn't go out and find a nun who'd been a nun since the French first finished Notre Dame. She didn't go out and find a nun decked out in full nunnery regala like Maggie Smith or Whoopi Goldberg in Sister Act. She didn't go out and find a abbess or mother superior who was handy with a ruler or could wield a yardstick like a rapier. No. She went out and found a nice nun. Her name was Sister Rosemary. She was actually a teacher at my sister's Catholic middle school. Each week she'd come by the house touting a canvas bag full of books, many of them copies of the Serendipity Children's Book Series. And we read all the way through those, one by one. I can't explain what it was that finally clicked. Maybe it was the lack of pressure from having to read aloud. Maybe it was the lack of pressure from fearing I'd get a bad grade for failing. Maybe it was that Sister Rosemary had the gift of actually making reading fun as opposed to work. But something clicked into place that summer, and the change was readily apparent to me soon after. A few months into my fourth grade year, our teacher, Miss Hale, gave us an assignment. We had just finished reading Roald Dahl's The Witches. She'd go on to read many books of his and like that to us and we just completed a language arts unit on fairy tales. Our new assignment was to write an original fairy tale of our own. Not only did we have to write it, but we also had to illustrate it and format it into a homemade book. 
Like a lot of kids with dyslexia, I did have a big interest in drawing, but the assignment really got me excited. Here's my chance to finally use the one thing that I think makes me a little different, my imagination, I thought. As a kid, while I did have older siblings, they weren't all that interested in playing with me. My brother in particular had a much easier time making friends than I did. I couldn't help it. I was shy and got my feelings hurt very easily if other kids overtly excluded me from fun. This made me, of course, very unpopular. And it's a challenge I've been trying to overcome ever since, and thus far have failed to do so. As a result, I spent a lot of my time on my own playing make-believe, as the old Barney and Friends TV show used to say. In the end, I actually began to enjoy my solitude so much that I found other people intrusive. I withdrew into a world of my own creation. Only as I started going to school was I able to somewhat emerge from it, but with extreme caution, a practice I still pretty much adhere to to this day. The upside to this solitude is that it was a great training ground for a fiction writer early in life. If you can picture something that isn't really happening in front of you, imagine people, places, and things that don't exist into existence, and take things you've seen and that have happened to you or other people and morph them into something new, then you have the makings of a fiction writer. We started with an outline, the first and last time I ever used one, where we mapped out our plot, our characters, our setting, and our conflict. I didn't know any of these concepts at the time, nor did I truly intellectualize about them, but that's what they were. We all wrote our first drafts in longhand. This was before the days when elementary schools taught keyboarding instead of cursive, and Miss Hale edited and critiqued them. Having just finally gotten the hang of reading, my writing skills weren't all that great, especially in the spelling department. My first draft came away covered in red ink chicken scratch from top to bottom. Thus began my long-term dislike of criticism of my work. We all carefully crafted the illustrations to make sure they were as good as possible. In the end, I had my first story, Merlin and the Magic Monster. It's also clear from that story that I had a thing for alliteration, although I also didn't know what that was at the time. Even though I enjoyed the process, I didn't embrace my new passion, despite encouragement to do so. Whenever an adult asked me the question, what do you want to be when you grow up, a question which the adults in my life seemed to ask perennially, unlike most kids who could toss off an answer seemingly without issue, I was always determined to answer the question sincerely. So seriously did I take this question that thinking it over gave me much of my own anxiety. To this day, I blame that question for a lot of my childhood anxiety which has followed me into adulthood. Writing didn't seem to be the thing to which I should devote my life. This belief had nothing to do with the economic hardship that often accompanied a writer's life. I wouldn't discover that until much later. My reticence was due to one thing. I'd been a dyslexic. Words had, until recently, been my enemy. I felt that because I lacked a natural control of language, I also suffered from several speech impediments, so this was true vocally as well as writerly. I could never be a good writer. So, like many children, I bounced from one interest to another. 
For a brief period of time, I toyed with the idea of becoming a paleontologist. Largely, this was due to my love of the movie Jurassic Park, which could give any child the false impression of what that profession entails. I did, however, love dinosaurs, and still to this day. They are the closest thing that the planet has ever seen to dragons of my beloved genre of fantasy. This then expanded into a love of all prehistoric animals, including pterosaurs, flying reptiles like the pterodactyl, and marine reptiles like the archelon and mosasaur. Then, under the influence of Steve Irwin, I considered becoming a herpetologist, a biologist who specializes in the study of reptiles and amphibians. It's a natural leap to go from wanting to be a paleontologist to a herpetologist because you're going from dealing with dead reptiles to living reptiles. My one hang-up on this front that kept me from pursuing this field was an irrational fear of snakes. I did what any person does to overcome a phobia, since most fear grows from a place of ignorance. I determined to educate myself out of that fear. I did so, and thus my irrational fear of snakes morphed into a completely rational fear of snakes. I suspect also that the movie Anaconda, seeing that film the year after it came out when my father brought it home from the library, didn't help my phobia either. Briefly, I also floated the idea of becoming a teacher, a perfectly practical job, if a low-paying one. I'd entered the world of music originally as a trumpet player and later acquired the upright bass in high school and thought that at least I could make a living as a music educator. However, four years in an arts high school surrounded by people who were far superior to you at what you wanted to do killed that dream in its cradle. With such competition, what was even the point of auditioning? In hindsight, the moment when I sealed my fate as a writer, although I didn't realize it then and whether or not I liked it, came before high school began. The summer between 8th grade and my freshman year of high school, I sat down at the family computer. We only had one in the house at the time, but that would soon change, with not a thought in my mind. I opened the 2003 version of Microsoft Word installed on the machine, and I wrote a sentence. In the year 5454, in the land of Telegro, a young Fanco sorcerer came to power. I didn't know what the hell that sentence meant, but I kept writing. A whole fantastical world suddenly began to emerge from the words. With each line, the world, at least in my mind, grew more vivid. With that one sentence, although I didn't even know it at the time, I'd begun my first attempt at a novel. For the next six years, off and on, due to an overscheduled high school life that did not agree with me at all, I worked on this book, which I preliminarily titled The Matthews Chronicle. I chose the title largely because its main characters were four siblings of the eponymous family. I finally finished a draft of it just before my 19th birthday, after I had realized that writing was going to be my métier, and as I'd mentioned before, it sucked. I transitioned to writing short stories after that in the hopes of improving my craft. All through college at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, where I made the fatal mistake of studying English largely out of a sense of being illiterate due to my dyslexia, I wrote story after story. Some of the comically bad ones even graced the pages of the campus humor magazine Brain Stew, to which I contributed from sophomore year onwards. 
I even managed to earn my first bit of money from writing by winning $200 in an essay contest. By the end of my collegial career, which I managed to get through without borrowing money, thus avoiding the great catch-22 of my generation's student debt, I had managed to make some headway in improving my fiction writing skills. In one story I'd written my last semester titled The Crippet, Crippled Trumpet Player, a title I'm sure the hyper-politically correct would take umbrage at uh, were it ever to be published, gave me insight into my process. It was always best for me to start with a beginning scene and an ending scene in mind before writing and work from one to the other. Sadly, my fiction writing waned after graduation and for a long while after that. In 2018, I received the email that would change my life. English degrees are great for only one thing in the real world. Decorating your wall to prove to people that you wasted four years of your life getting a pretty piece of paper. They aren't, however, great for getting jobs in the real world. So I'd taken a job, my first in the field, working in retail. I hated the job, but I loved my coworkers. I'm not much of a talker. John Updike once said, you write because you don't talk so well, and that was definitely true for me. So working in a grocery store department surrounded by women, all of whom loved to talk, was great for me. I got to listen to all their life stories and their perspectives. Working there really gave me insight into an experience, the women's experience, for lack of a better phrase, about which I knew nothing. While there, though, I still harbored this ambition to be a writer. I still had my métier. After being there for one year, seven months, and two weeks, I chose to leave. I'd amassed a considerable amount of savings over that time for one reason alone, to pay to attend a writer's workshop. Since leaving college, I'd not found a replacement for the workshop environment, which I decided was necessary for me to grow as a writer. Without a feedback loop, I was simply spinning my wheels and gaining no traction. That January, I shotgunned applications to every one of which I had knowledge of. Concurrently, I began my next attempt at a novel. I did these two things simultaneously for one reason, an expectation of rejection. The year previous, 2017, the one writing workshop to which I'd applied to had rejected me. I'd largely done it on a whim to learn how the application process worked. There were also several instructors teaching at that workshop that year who I wanted the opportunity to meet and learn from, as they were all professional writers. With no past success to give me confidence, I expected they would, yet again, reject me. In that belief to salve my ego when the nose arrived in my inbox, I started writing the novel to retain my belief that I was indeed a real writer. They may reject me, I thought, but I have my novel and only real writers can write novels. I'm sure my thinking bore some resemblance to that. Every day I would sit down at my laptop and I would pound out 1,000 words a day consistently. I had nothing else to do except crank out this novel, so I was surely going to crank it out 1K at a time. I discovered, at least when it came to writing novels, that pace was really, really good for me. I also discovered that every time I met that goal, my mood was much lighter. And at first, I was spot on. Within 48 hours, 
and within days of my 25th birthday, I received two successive rejections from my top two workshops of choice. I braced myself for further disappointment by tossing the rejections aside and focusing on the novel. Then I received the most unexpected news. An email arrived from a Christopher McKitterick, the then and current director of the James Gunn Center for the Study of Science Fiction. The Gunn Center workshop, as I call it, had actually been my fourth choice in workshops, not because I thought it inferior to the others, but because of its length. The other three workshops to which I'd applied had a course period of six weeks, whereas the Gunn Center's workshop only ran for two weeks. I thought, two weeks? That's it? What am I supposed to learn in two weeks? Still, I'd applied at the suggestion of Kids Johnson, who I'd managed to meet the fall before. She would know what the workshop was like because she was, and still is, associate director of the Gun Center. And I'd gotten to meet her in her office that fall because I'd written her a fan letter for her book of short stories at the mouth of the River of Bees. Still, I figured it was another rejection, and I opened it expecting one. Instead, what I found was a very sweet, encouraging message. Chris began the email first by apologizing for not responding more quickly. I didn't think it was too late, but who am I to make such calls? He then went on to critique the story, a fantasy novelette titled Fire Drake, in a very thoughtful, sensitive, comprehensive manner. I put it that way because I'd never liked workshopping in person, at least from my college workshop experiences. I'd found my fellow critique partners too abrasive, overly nitpicky, and at least one too many cases dismissive of my work altogether. Chris's approach was clearly different, though. He believed in figuring out the platonic ideal of the story you were trying to write and then offering suggestions in the aim of helping you, the writer, bring the story closer toward that perceived ideal. I like this approach much better than the creative woodchipper method my university courses preferred. At the top of the second to last paragraph of the email, he wrote the following sentence. Regardless, if you're still interested, you're in. It was my first real acceptance as a writer, in my mind. I must admit also that I didn't immediately accept Chris's offer. At the time, I'd yet to hear back from the fourth program to which I applied. Shortly after Chris's acceptance came in, though, the fourth response came through. A polite rejection, so I immediately wrote Chris back after that and said I was indeed in. At the end of the workshop, I felt that I had learned more in two weeks than I had in all four years of my time as an undergraduate. Chris's teaching satisfied every desire I had in wanting to learn the craft of fiction writing. During the final get-together as a formal class, he asked us what our reactions had been to the class. I had only one thing to say. I wish I had done this three years ago, and I meant it. Now, I can say I have something of a writing career. It's been a fairly short one. Yes, but the last three years, between 25 and now 28, have been some of the best times of my life. There have already been some ups and downs, but one shouldn't expect anything else in a highly creative freelance career. It isn't the most stable means of making a living, especially at the beginning, but it is the most satisfying.
As a kid, my parents only wanted one thing for my siblings and me. They didn't want us to follow a particular career path. They didn't want us to go into business to get rich and look after them in their dotage, although I'm sure they'd appreciate it. They didn't expect us to go into fields they'd wanted to go into so they could live vicariously through us. They only wanted us to be happy and secure. And the happiness always came first. Reflecting on it now, despite feeling as though I'd come to it late and so started late, I can honestly say I am. So like I said at the top of the show, uh, one writer with whom I actually happen to share this day as uh, a birthday is Robert Frost. And I have to admit, when I first read a lot of Robert Frost's work, I didn't understand it, but that's also because I didn't really understand poetry. I think I covered that in the February episode of this uh, show. I didn't understand Frost poetry, I didn't understand poetry in general, but once I got an understanding of poetry, Frost was one of the first poets who really kind of opened up to me, and I was able to begin to understand his work. And when I found out, when I discovered very much my chance that we happened to share the same birthday, uh, he immediately kind of became a, a personal favorite of mine originally based solely on that reason but later on as I kept reading his stuff I began to really fall in love with his language uh, Frost was considered in some way old-fashioned for his time he was a member of the modernist movement uh, sort of based on his age but he was very old-fashioned compared to a lot of modernists a lot of his contemporaries like T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound because he used old-fashioned forms, he refused to abandon uh, metrical writing, he refused, uh, didn't always use, but refused to completely abandon rhyme. And this made him look stodgy. But as he grew older, and as he gained, you know, he ended up winning four Pulitzer Prizes for poetry, and I think a National Humanities Medal from the United States, and eventually a, an actual prize for poetry was named after him, uh, the Robert Frost Medal, and he ended up uh, being one of the first poets to read a poem at a presidential inauguration, uh, JFK's inauguration, believe it or not. Uh, he actually, interesting story about that, his eyesight was very bad at that point. He was a very old man. I think a lot of people tend to think of Frost as a perpetually old man because of that haggard-looking face that uh, we associate him with, the white hair, the crazy white hair in the suit. But he actually couldn't read the poem he'd prepared for JFK. He'd written it. Originally, he'd actually uh, refused to do it, but then he wrote it kind of in a frenzy, a, a muse-filled frenzy, as he called it. But then he couldn't read it because the light in Washington, D.C. was so apparently dim that January 
when JFK was being inaugurated. So instead, he recited a poem of his from memory and just basically added a great deal of solemnity to the occasion. Very, and it, to this day, a lot of Democratic presidents have had, have insisted on having poets. The next one to do it after Frost was Maya Angelou at Bill Clinton's inauguration. And then very recently, Joe Biden had a poet read at his inauguration. All original compositions, I might add. So he really did become a major figure in his lifetime, especially towards the end of his life. But it's his work that continues to really survive and really ensure his legacy. And his language, his themes, you know, at first they appear rustic, but then if you read them a few times, you begin to realize that there's a really dark understanding melancholy beneath them that's nonetheless sort of elevated and coped with through the beauty of his language. And so this is just a brief selection of the works of Robert Frost. I'm going to be reading from his uh, his collected poems, the, the, the poetry of Robert Frost, and I hope that uh, among this handful of poems you'll find something that uh, will connect with you. So please do enjoy. The Road Not Taken Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both, and be one traveler, long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, and leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Take something like a star. O star, the fairest one in sight, we grant your loftiness the right to some obscurity of cloud. It will not do to say of night, since dark is what brings out your light. Some mystery becomes the proud, but to be wholly taciturn in your reserve is not allowed. Say something to us we can learn, by heart and when alone repeat. Say something, and it says, I burn. But say with what degree of heat, talk Fahrenheit, talk centigrade, use language we can comprehend. Tell us what elements you blend. It gives us strangely little aid, but does tell something in the end. And steadfast as Keats's Eremite, not even stooping from its sphere, it asks a little of us here. It asks of us a certain height. So when at times the mob is swayed to carry praise or blame too far, we may take something like a star. 
to stay our minds on and be stayed. Birches When I see birches bend to left and right across the lines of straighter, darker trees, I like to think some boy's been swinging them. But swinging doesn't bend them down to stay as ice storms do. Often you must have seen them loaded with ice a sunny winter morning after a rain. They click upon themselves as the breeze rises, and turn many-colored as the stir cracks and crazes their enamel. Soon the sun's warmth makes them shed crystal shells, shattering and avalanching on the snow crust. Such heaps of broken glass to sweep away, you'd think the inner dome of heaven had fallen. They are dragged to the withered bracken by the load, and they seem not to break. Though once they are bowed so low for long, they never right themselves. You may see their trunks arching in the woods years afterwards, trailing their leaves on the ground like girls on hands and knees that throw their hair before them over their heads to dry in the sun. But I was going to say when truth broke in, with all her matter-of-fact about the ice storm, I should prefer to have some boy bend them as he went out and in to fetch the cows. Some boy too far from town to learn baseball, whose only play was what he found himself, summer or winter, and could play alone. One by one he subdued his father's trees by riding them down over and over again until he took the stiffness out of them. And not one but hung limp, not one was left for him to conquer. He learned all there was to learn about not launching out too soon, and so not carrying the tree away clear to the ground. He always kept his poise to the top branches, climbing carefully with the same pains you use to fill a cup up to the brim, and even above the brim. Then he flung outward, feet first, with a swish, kicking his way down through the air to the ground. So was I once myself a swinger of birches. And so I dream of going back to be. It's when I'm weary of considerations, and life is too much like a pathless wood, where your face burns and tickles with the cobwebs broken across it, and one eye is weeping, from a twig's having lashed across it open. I'd like to get away from earth a while, and then come back to it and begin over. May no fate willfully misunderstand me, and half grant what I wish, and snatch me away not to return. Earth's the right place for love. I don't know where it's likely to go better. I'd like to go by climbing a birch tree, and climb black branches up a snow-white trunk toward heaven, till the tree could bend no more, but dipped its top and set me down again. That would be good both going and coming back. One could do worse than be a swinger of birches. Fire and Ice Some say the world will end in fire, some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor fire. 
But if it had to perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to know that for destruction ice is also great and would suffice. Acquainted with the Night I have been one acquainted with the night. I have walked out in rain and back in rain. I have outwalked the furthest city light. I have looked down the saddest city lane. I have passed by the watchman on his beat and dropped my eyes, unwilling to explain. I have stood still and stopped the sound of feet when far away an interrupted cry came over houses from another street. But not to call me back or say goodbye, and further still at an unearthly height, one luminary clock against the sky proclaimed the time was neither wrong nor right. I have been one acquainted with the night. Stopping by woods on a snowy evening. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near, between the woods and frozen lake, the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harder spells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. So since I promised that I would do a mix of everything, uh, one of the items that I was asked to do was to uh, read one of the short stories that was recently published in one of the anthologies that uh, I've been lucky enough to be a part of recently. And so I thought, considering that um, this is the most recent one, uh, I would read you the crime fiction story that I wrote called Deliver Us From Evil. It was originally published in In the Red Room, a crime anthology with heart. And so I hope you really enjoy this. I think it's, as I said in the episode where I talked about how I wrote this story, I think it's probably one of the best stories I've written in terms of prose from one line to another. Um, and I, it, it was a big change for me in terms of using a contemporary setting not using any kind of fantasy elements, kind of stripping everything back and being able to write in a fashion that I don't normally write in. So I think this is probably one of the best pieces I've done so far, and I hope you enjoy it. So here it is, Deliver Us From Evil from In The Red Room. As they left the AA meeting, Rosa kept smiling while Burke spoke. Over the past several months, they'd grown closer attending meetings, one in the morning, one in the evening. Everything, though, had remained platonic, which was perfect. All she wanted was his friendship, his trust. His tone said she'd gained it. It was easy, the way one sounded when speaking to those with whom you're comfortable. 
They emerged into the church's dark parking lot. Each breath released a puff of steam into the autumn air. After that, Burke said, my uncle never went bar hopping alone. Rosa forced a chuckle. I should hope so. Waking up in an alley covered in your own piss would deter anyone. Burke chuckled. No kidding. The lights of the Chevy Equinox flashed from across the lot. That was Alex's way of saying, time to go. Well, Joey, we'll see you tomorrow. She held out her fist. He smiled and bumped it. Of course. Still smiling, he headed towards his battered Ford Focus, and she headed toward her car. Alex started it as she opened the door. So, he said as she closed the door and clicked her seat belt, Did you get it? Absolutely. From her jacket pocket, she extracted a styrofoam cup sealed inside a plastic lunch bag. The prints on it were the final piece of the jigsaw puzzle. Had she finally found Lily's killer? Chattering footfalls and ringing phones filled the station. Burnt coffee and faint cigarette smoke peppered the air. Detective Morehouse plopped the box on his desk. This is everything. Inside the box were five files, the first four of which were bulky. The last one was Lily's. Rosa had only skimmed them before. The likelihood of catching a serial murderer was always low. With this being her sole priority now, however, scrutiny was paramount. The name scrawled on the boxes outside read, The Drop Sight Killer. She pulled out the first file and examined its contents. Why'd they call him that? She tapped the name with her knuckle. His M.O. Wherever one of his victims was last seen two weeks later is where we inevitably find the body. For Lily, that place had been her job at the Carnahan Museum. She'd wanted to be a history professor, so what better place to work than a history museum of some kind? Without any detectable evidence? Morehouse groaned. No fibers, no blood, no hairs... Whoever this creep is, he's smart. What about fingerprints? No prints. Morehouse scratched his beard. Well, except one. A pang of anticipation rushed through Rosa like an extra shot of espresso. Where? Morehouse grabbed Lily's file. He thumbed through it and drew out a single sheet of paper. The image it depicted to the untrained eye would have just been a monochrome smudge. But Rosa recognized what it really was, a partial print. Alex asked if he could do one last once-over before we released the body. He handed Rosa the picture. Considering everything, including Dropsight's careful track record, we didn't think he'd find anything. He scratched his cheek. Turns out, as careful as this sicko is, he's not perfect. Rosa did her best to hold back a smile for the sake of professionalism. To her eyes, this partial print was more than evidence. It was hope incarnate. Hi, I'm Brandon, and I'm an alcoholic, he said. The group, Rosa included, responded in unison with, Hi, Brandon. He began one of his typical tales of alcoholic temptation. That's all anyone who shared talked about in these meetings. Some stories were more exciting than others were. Rosa even shared a tale or two, especially on the big two, Lily's birthday and her death day. Three years ago, in two months. Alex kept her on her feet through all that time. It hadn't been easy for him, either. 
He hadn't been Lily's father, but he'd been a fantastic dad. He even supported her when she told him she was leaving the police department to become a P.I. Politicians and taxpayers expected police, whatever their rank, to be cogs in the system, another component to lower city crime statistics for the sake of justifying taxpayer dollar spending. As a P.I., she could call her own shots. And with Alex still working in their forensic processing labs, she had all the facilities she needed. Besides, cops couldn't work on personal cases. The loss of objectivity, according to experts, was a detriment to getting results. Yet, here she was, possibly inches from closure. Three chairs away sat Burke. He had the same non-judgmental, neutral expression on his face he wore while listening in group. Even from this distance, he didn't look like a serial killer. Then again, the ladies who met Ted Bundy for the first time probably thought the same thing. Her phone vibrated. Quietly, she rose and headed to the bathroom. The caller ID said it was Alex, so she swiped to answer. Hey babe, what's up? Hey, just got comparison results. A vice gripped her heart. Her breathing became shallow. The next question sat on the tip of her tongue, but she hesitated. What if she was wrong? Her ears and face warmed. What if Burke wasn't the killer? Her palms began to sweat. What if the last three years of hunting had been for nothing? Where would she be then? Babe, you okay? She took a deep breath. Regardless, she had to know. Que sera sera and they would deal with the outcome. Yeah, babe, sorry. So? There was a pause. It's a match. The vice released, and tears started to fill her eyes. Only one of the other victim's families agreed to speak to Rosa, Senora Maria Lopez, the mother of the victim before Lily. She met her at her home, 3132 Oakwood Avenue. After getting her Yorkshire Terry to calm down, they spoke over coffee in her living room. The topic wasn't going to be easy to broach. The last thing a passenger in the boat of grief wanted to do was discuss what got them a ticket aboard. But for the investigation, she had to, and she would, but cautiously. After a little polite chit-chat to put Signora at ease, Rosa proceeded. What can you tell me about the last day you saw your daughter? Senora wiped her eyes and took a deep breath. The last time I saw Marta, she was heading over to Garrison Park to take some pictures. She looked at Rosa. She was pursuing a photography career. Any gig, she'd take it. Weddings, funerals, proms. And she was good. Senora Lopez rose and went over to a closet in the main hallway. She took out a large old shoebox. She sat it on the coffee table in front of Rosa and removed the lid. The glossy surfaces of stacks of hundreds of pictures gleamed up at her. Her work? The last pictures she developed. Ever since we got her that first disposable camera from Walgreens, she'd been snapping them. Rosa undid some of the loose rubber bands binding the stacks and flipped through them. Some of them had time stamps, while others had dates, locations, and rough times written on the back in Sharpie. Her mother was right. Marta was good. When she left, did she go alone? Senor Lopez pulled the box closer to her. Oh, she was 
going with her work friends. She worked a day job at the Quick Trip as a cashier. She grabbed the nearest stack. She flipped through it and handed Rosa a photo. It featured five people, three women and two men. The figure at the center was Marta. Rosa had only ever seen her autopsy photos. She looked so full of joy, as did her friends, except one. One young man wasn't smiling. In fact, he seemed reluctant to be in the frame. Who's that? Oh, that must be Joey Burke, said Senora Lopez. She told me about him, but he never visited. She said he was a work hermit. He'd go home right after work and barely socialize afterwards. He's not in many photos. Joseph Burke. Interesting. Rosa pocketed her phone. What could they do next? A single match to a partial print from a three-year-old case wasn't enough to guarantee a conviction. They needed more. She stared at her reflection in the bathroom mirror. The question irritated her mind like a belt pulled just too tight. Something snatched her attention. A thread. It dangled from the sweater she wore. She pinched it and pulled, but more thread came loose. It was better to leave it be for now. She pulled the bathroom door open. Feeling okay? A startled jolt zapped Rosa's heart. Burke stood near the door, two coffee cups in hand. He apologized and held one cup out to her. You look like you might need something to keep you awake. Rosa forced her best smile. Thanks. I was feeling rather sleepy. Each took a sip and stood a moment in silence. Then Burke's eyes drifted downwards. Loose thread. Yeah, she said. If I yank it, it'll just pull the sweater apart. Burke sat his coffee cup atop the nearby trash can. I can fix that. He reached for something beneath his jacket. He pulled up a black piece of plastic. With a click, a long serrated blade sprang from it. With a quick slice, he removed the thread and then dangled it in front of her. See? Quick work. The blade's edge twinkled in the fluorescent light. Do you always carry that? Not always. Another click and the blade collapsed. But I prefer to have it on me. The thick denim of his jeans scraped as he replaced it. You never know when you might need one. Rosa kept smiling. And how'd you learn to handle a knife so smoothly? Burke smiled back. Hunting and tanning. When I was a kid. The rattles of metal chairs drew their attention again. Burke picked up his coffee. Better head back. Rosa held back. Her hands started to shake, so she gripped her coffee cup with both to stop it. The way he'd handled that knife, that it had a serrated blade like the cuts on the victims. It had to be true. Senora Lopez provided Rosa with contact information for Martha's former employer. She called the Quick Trips manager, one Thomas Grant, and asked if she could speak with him about Martha and her old co-workers. She was a great worker, he said, leaning back in his desk chair. Didn't matter what you asked her to do, she'd do it efficiently. He stared at the wall a moment. The customers loved her. Rosa couldn't help but briefly smile at that. Between Senor Lopez's comments about her and this, Marta had clearly been a good person, kind, ambitious, and hardworking. All that potential snuffed out by a sicko. 
What about her teammates? How did she get along with them? Swimmingly. Matter of fact, whenever they were on shift together, the place ran like a new car. Not one hiccup ever. They all had each other's backs. Do any of them still work here? Yes, I can ask them to speak with you if you'd like. I'd appreciate that. Grant's brow furrowed for a second. Nope. Wait. I lied. One of them doesn't. Rosa raised an eyebrow. Who? Joey Burke. He opened the topmost drawer of a nearby filing cabinet. He flicked through several folders before drawing out one and flipped through its contents. Yes, he turned his two-week notice in two months before Martha passed. Interesting. Did he give any reason? Yeah, said Grant. He flipped to another page inside the folder. According to his resignation letter, it was mainly because of benefits. He said he'd taken a job over at the Carnahan Museum as a janitor. They were offering him more money an hour than I was, plus better benefits a month into the job. That name leapt out at Rosa like an actor in a haunted house. The Carnahan Mansion Museum was where Lily had disappeared, and where her body turned up two weeks later. There was a connection, and his name was Joseph Burke. It's not enough, Rosa, said Morehouse. Rosa sat forward in the chair and cupped her head in her hands. The groan from Chief Brogan told her he concurred with Morehouse. Burke had no criminal record, either adult or juvenile, not even a speeding ticket. The only reason he was on their radar now was because of her. With only a fingerprint, a tie between two victims and a connection to Lily's former workplace, the evidence was circumstantial. If they arrested him now, any slippery defense attorney could spin things that way before a jury, and then he'd walk. Not even the knife could peg him down. Rosa sifted through possibilities. What else could they do? Wait for another murder? What if he disappeared before he killed again? Brogan's chair creaked as he leaned forward. There is one possibility, Rosa. She looked up at him. The light glinted off the badge on his chest. What? What if you could get him to confess on tape? Rosa frowned. Wearing a wire? and try to force it out of him? With the evidence, there's plenty to suggest a connection that might be enough for a warrant to authorize its use. Are you losing it, Chief? said Morehouse. If she does that and Burke really did do it, what do you think he'll do to her? She'd do it under our surveillance, Morehouse. That way we can snatch him up should he try anything, and if he confesses, and if he denies it, Rosa stood up. We have to chance it. She glared at Morehouse, trying hard to check her emotions. The thought that they might let Burke go when he was inches from apprehension put a catch in her throat. The tears were seconds away from trickling out of her. She took a moment to compose herself. If we wait, he could vanish and re-emerge after another killing, she said. And we'd be right back where we started. She turned to Brogan. See if you can get the warrant. I'll arrange everything with Burke. Okay, said Brogan. Any idea for where this will happen? Rosa had only one place in mind. Rosa locked arms with Burke and walked into the Carnahan Museum. She'd convinced him to give her the tour of the place because she hadn't been inside. 
pretty good lie on her part. She hadn't been inside it since before Lily died. They wandered through several of the exhibits, with Burke telling her stuff he'd overheard the tour guide say. Suddenly, they rounded a corner, and Rose's stomach backflipped. The Red Room exhibit. It was a precise replica of the Carnahan family's salon. Scarlet walls, white doors, golden furniture, and a crystal chandelier. Rosa half expected a Carnahan to enter any moment. Despite that, the fireplace drew all of Rosa's attention. In front of it was where they'd found Lily's body. Memories of the crime scene photos flashed before her eyes. She clenched her fist and, in her mind, said the prayer she'd said at the morgue when they called her and Alex in to identify Lily's body. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Burke unlocked his arm from Rosa's and stepped into the exhibit, pointing and explaining, but Rosa heard only the words of the prayer. Slowly, her courage built up like the pressure in a shaken champagne bottle. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Burke turned to the fireplace. And that's made of the same, Joey? It's over, she said. Burke looked at her, an eyebrow raised. What? This game of hide-and-seek you've been playing? It's done. Burke tilted his head like a confused dog and smiled. Rosa, are you okay? Alex and Morehouse's voices blared through the earbud in her right ear, but she didn't respond. The prayer continued. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who... Do you remember a young woman who worked here three years ago named Lily Nunez? A shadow dropped over Burke's eyes. The smile wilted into a sad scowl. Then a different smile crept over his face, like a lethargic serpent. I guess it was bound to happen eventually. He bowed like an actor on stage. Then with ease, he whipped out his knife and pointed the blade at her. I guess the question now is, what next? He tossed the knife between his hands like a juggler's ball and walked towards her at an easy pace. Normally, I like to take things slow. His path shifted like a predator trying to outflank its prey. But I don't think I have that luxury. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Burke charged her. Rosa grabbed the wrist of his knife hand. She tried to stay on her feet, but Burke had at least forty pounds on her. They toppled to the floor, knocking over the golden furniture. They grappled, each trying to overpower the other. Burke pinned her down and punched her repeatedly in the face. Rosa didn't release her grip on his knife hand. The blade inched closer to her neck. A stampede of running coursed through the floor. Shouts and commands filled the air. Two armored officers hauled Burke off her. Alex and Morehouse followed and helped Rosa to her feet. She hugged Alex tight, but she kept her sights on Burke. The serpentine smile was gone, replaced again with a scowl. He glared at her as one of the officers Mirandized him. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Rosa smiled at him. She'd got him.
Hey, funny people. If you enjoy what I do here on Four Cents a Podcast, then consider becoming a supporter of the show. I know times are tough and money's tight, but even just a little bit helps. If you're interested, go to anchor.fm slash four cents a podcast and click on the support button to learn how. Thanks for listening. Hey, funny people. Thanks for spending some time with me here on Four Cents a Podcast. Until next we meet, stay safe, stay healthy, and bear in mind the words of the great poet Langston Hughes, Folks, birthing is hard, and dying is mean. So get yourself a little lovin' in between. I'll see you next time. <laughs>